everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Well, this morning here in the Mojave, the winds are blowing, and you may even hear that in the background of this recording. The winds are blowing, and that makes me wonder, will these be the winds of change? The winds of change. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I often wake up in the middle of the night these days, and that's generally a mixed blessing. I can't say that I always feel great, that the things that I think about and wonder about in those early, early, early morning hours are not always so positive, despite the company of my cats and my dog. For a while, I was thinking that this malaise was personal, but of course it's not. You take a quick look at the news and you realize that any malaise, depression, just general feeling of helplessness, despair, powerlessness, oh my gosh, name it, is uh, a reflection of the collective. To feel that way is a sane response to the situation that we're in. In the past year, we have witnessed an unprecedented number of attacks on common sense and common decency, witnessing the tearing down of all of the institutions that we have created that foster a sense of community, support justice, protect the earth. We've got this ongoing conversation about women and whether or not women are worth respecting and protecting, whether or not women are even human beings. And I look at all of this and I think, wow, people are in so much pain. We are all in so much pain, no matter which side, quote unquote, you're on. There's a lot of fear, a lot of fear and this longing to cling to what already exists, to the devil that we already know, (laughs) to the power, to the security that we already have. Risking a change Risking even being the change, being the change that you want to see in the world, that's scary. That's scary. As we're entering into the holiday season here in the United States, I find myself thinking even more than usual about this concept of faith and the need for faith. It's a word that we commonly associate with religious affiliation, but it's much bigger than that. It's You can have faith in many things. In fact, you need to have faith in something, especially when it looks like things are falling apart, especially when it looks like the darkness is getting so deep that a part of you wonders if, in fact, there will be a return of the light. I ask myself, what do I have faith in? Well, I have faith that there is a point to all of this. I have faith in that Hopi Elders River. 
I have shared the message of the Hopi elders on this program before, and you might recall that they use the metaphor of the river. They say, the river is running fast right now. Don't be afraid and cling to the banks. Swim out to the middle of the river and trust that the river has a destination. That is, trust that this flow of events and time and feeling has a purpose, has a point. I have faith in the power of love to overcome hatred, to heal, to lead to a spiritual awakening and awareness of the truth of what really is. I have faith that if you take care, that if you take care of yourself, of other people, of animals and plants and the earth, if you allow each thing to have value, that you will live a more satisfying and also moral life. I have faith in the resiliency of the earth and the durability of her cycles. These are the things that I remind myself about at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I turn to this poem that David White wrote titled Faith. He writes, I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith myself. I refuse it even the smallest entry. Let this, then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. The first prayer that opens me to faith. I don't know how you're feeling right now as you're listening to this program, but if you need a little faith, you can, like David White and myself, (laughs) turn to the moon, to the cosmos, as an experience of the eternal and its beauty. It's really hard right now. The pain is palpable. The shouting is so loud. If there weren't so many glimpses of the absurd in all of this, and so many beautiful acts of love and creativity and humor every day all around the world, we might simply give up. But I don't see people doing that. I don't see people giving up, for the most part. Being tired? Yes. Being angry? Yes. Is there more weeping? Is there more outrage? Yes. Breaking down, a sense of breaking down, a fear of breaking down? Yes. But that breaking down is also a breaking open. A breaking open, a coming into closer contact with what you love with what matters to you, with what you're willing to defend and to build. It also shows me the incredible importance of a small act, the way that a smile exchanged with a stranger can completely change my day. The power that flows back into my body when I act with generosity and good cheer, when I say thank you and mean it, when I hold open the door, and, or give somebody a hug, get a hug, even better. <laughs> a young woman uh, here in Joshua Tree died unexpectedly a couple of weeks ago. This is a great example of what I am 
talking about and what I have faith in. This young woman died unexpectedly, leaving behind her husband and a six-week-old infant son. Some friends of hers created a GoFundMe campaign with the relatively modest goal of raising $18,000 for some trained childcare assistance for the husband and son as they're going through the intense grieving process and very early weeks of life for this little boy. When I made my contribution this weekend, they had already raised $43,000. And three days later, that is earlier this week, I got an announcement from the GoFundMe campaign that they had raised over $73,000. $73,000 in the memory of a young woman who is very much loved by our small community and in the recognition of the needs of her family. Incredible, right? And important, important because of the need that's being met, and important because it reaffirms faith in who we actually can be, and important because whatever comes next is going to be made from what is and what has been. It's as if we are tearing down a house And as we do so, we want to set aside all of the good boards, all of the sound boards, so that they can be reused. How we take care of that house, how carefully we take it down, is going to have a direct impact on how many good boards we find. There's a story that I told at an event recently that I want to share with you that I call the black dog. And it's a story that I heard Michael Mead tell years ago when he was meditating on what it's like to be living in a time that seemed like end times. In this story, we are told that people talk about an old woman, an old woman who lives in a cave. And this old woman may be uh, the mother, Mother Earth. She may be the old soul, the old mind, a little piece of which resides in all of us. This old woman lives in a cave. She lives in a cave on the mountain. And nobody seems to really know the way to this cave anymore. And yet, there is a road. She spends her days, for the most part, weaving. And she has been weaving a beautiful, beautiful garment, a cloak for herself for a very long time. She's almost at the end of this project and has decided that she will trim the edge of the cloak with porcupine needles. This means that she needs to bite down on each one of the needles in order to fashion them into the fringe, and as she has been sitting and doing this for some time, her teeth have worn down to nubs. Now, the other thing that this old woman has to do while she sits in her cave, this cave on the mountain that may be near the heart of the earth, while she sits and weaves, is to go to the back of the cave where there is a fire burning, 
a fire that has been burning so long that the old woman can't remember a time when it ever wasn't burning, and stir the contents of a large cauldron that sits on the fire. This cauldron is full of all of the seeds for all of the plants on the earth, and it has to be stirred up occasionally so that all of those seeds, all of those possibilities for life, don't stick to the bottom of the cauldron and get scorched. So every now and then, the woman just has a feeling it's time to get up and make her way back to the back of the cave to stir the cauldron. And because she is very old, it takes her a long time to walk back to the back of the cave to stir the contents and to make it back to her weaving. Imagine that this old woman is weaving and she has that sense that it's time. She gets up and as she makes her way back to the back of the cave, a black dog, a black dog who has been there with this woman all along, gets up and goes over to investigate the garment. The dog sniffs at the garment and sniffs and paws at it and finds a loose thread. He pulls on the loose thread, and because every thread is woven to the others, as he pulls on this thread, he gradually unravels her garment. When the old woman comes back from the cauldron, she sees her beautiful garment, the work of who knows how many years, how many decades, laying in a tangled heap on the floor of the cave. She bends down and picks up one loose, shining thread and holds it in her hand and immediately begins to imagine the most beautiful garment in the world. And she sits down and begins once again to weave. As Michael Mead has pointed out, as long as that woman is weaving, there is no end. And as long as we are telling the story of the woman who is weaving and we know that she is weaving, there is no end. And I would add that we see that she is reusing what is useful from the previous creation to begin the next one. Our endings are our beginnings. How many times have we said this? Creation and destruction, destruction and creation. We say this over and over and over again, and now I think we are being called upon to have faith in this and to do all that we can to make it so. This is the season of letting go, of releasing what no longer works. We have two more weeks until the winter solstice. Two more weeks until the winter solstice, when without our lifting a finger, the dance between darkness and light changes step. So we're in this cycle, my friends, and it is happening, and we can have faith that it will happen. But how will we participate? In this season of letting go, will we let go? When I 
ask that question of people, they often think first of letting go of what they want to be rid of. You know, we want to let go of habits and feelings and memories that bring us pain or of problems that we face that we've been trying to solve. And these are good things to let go. We don't want to carry animosity or fear or attachments to old stories about the past. That kind of heaviness isn't helpful. There are many stories that imagine these old burdens as baggage or rocks. And the whole point is to know what we need to set down and walk off down the road without. Letting go of attachments, letting go of identifying, those aren't the same things as denying or forgetting. And I came across a really beautiful statement by Terry Tempest Williams that I think contains that understanding. She writes, I want to feel both the beauty and the pain of the age we are living in. I want to survive my life without becoming numb. I want to speak and comprehend words of wounding without having those words become the landscape where I dwell. I want to possess a light touch that can elevate darkness to the realm of stars. That's from her book, When Women Were Birds. And in that, I hear an understanding that there's a letting go, which is not a denying or a forgetting. Letting go, letting go can also mean the giving away of things of value that we have that can be better used by others. The unworn clothing, for example, that we keep in the closet because maybe one day we're going to wear it, when in the meantime, there are other people in our communities who would be wearing it today if it was in their closet. Duplicative household items that seem to accumulate as if they bred themselves in the corners of the house that we've let fill up over time. Letting go as really being realistic about what we need and what we use and how we live and letting go of things that aren't really so much possibilities as they are empty assurances that we're giving ourselves that maybe, maybe, maybe if we need it, things like that that are protections against possible loss and problems rather than active resources. And that goes for money, too. I got a funny cartoon from a friend recently, and you can't see the cartoon, but I'm going to read you the tagline. It's a group of men sitting around a table, and it's we're told that it's the Senate GOP meeting this morning, and the chairman at the head of the table says... Before we discuss raising taxes on the poor and middle class, adding $1 trillion to the deficit, taking health insurance away from 13 million people, raising premiums by 10%, defending treason and swearing in a pedophile, let's begin with a prayer. (laughs) Now, if you, like me, are outraged and worried about the GOP tax scam, you might consider making some contributions giving some money away, dropping $5 in the bucket of the homeless person who's standing by the side of the freeway on-ramp, 
or making a contribution to your local food bank, whatever it is that speaks to you, and consider this to be a form of spiritual homeopathic medicine. When we give, we remind ourselves of our ability to give. It connects you back up to abundance. And there's yet another form of letting go. That is, letting go as opening to the ways that we will be changed, even transformed. Recognizing that among the many losses that we may count may be a version of ourselves that we've outgrown. This time of year, I often think of the Sumerian myth of Inanna, and in particular, the part of the story that involves her descent to the underworld. Anana has decided that she's going to go down to the underworld to visit her sister, Arishkigal. Now, ostensibly, the purpose of her visit is to comfort her sister, whose husband has just died. But things do not go the way that Anana plans. And the surprises begin when she gets to the first of the seven gates that she must pass through to get down to her sister's underworld kingdom. At the very first gate, she knocks on the door, and the gatekeeper very rudely asks her who she is, and she says, well, I'm Anana, queen of, king of heaven and earth. And the gatekeeper says, wait here, and goes and tells his queen, Arishkagel, that her sister Anana is at the gate, and Arishkagel says, let her in, but make her remove one of her accoutrements of power and repeat this at every one of my seven gates. So as Anana makes her way down through the underworld to her sister, she is forced to give up all of the things that she identifies with in the above world. She has to give up her crown, her scepter, her jewelry, her gown even. By the time she gets to Arishkagal's throne room, she's completely naked. She is stripped of all of the things that gave her so much power and meaning that defined her. And then when she makes it down to the underworld, immediately Arishkagal fixes her with the eye of death, kills her, and has her hung on a hook where she turns green for three days before she is eventually rescued by creatures from the above world. When Anana goes back, she is not the same person. She is a more complete version of herself because she has contacted her shadow because she has tasted the powers of the underworld and integrated that some into herself. Now, there is no version of the story where Anana gets to the first gate and hears that she's going to have to give up one of her valuable possessions, part of her identity, where she goes, hmm, I don't know. This is not starting to feel like the trip that I thought I was going to make and turns around and goes back home. You get the sense from other parts of the story of Anana that this is a goddess who has 
a hell of a lot of confidence in herself, and she is quite powerful. And so she proceeds, and I think this is what we do. We proceed, because some part of us still thinks that we are in control, that we know what's going on, and then before you know it, we are the thing that is being transformed. We are required to die. Hanging on the hook, hanging on the hook, suffering one of the many deaths that occur in a well-loved life. Deaths that are the price of wisdom and of any real security that we can have in the world. To not know the future and to admit this, to accept the fragility of our situation and life and the preciousness of this moment, to understand that we are in a constant flow of changes, most of which are taking place well below our awareness. This is the shared human condition. And we may rail against this. We may try and defend ourselves against it with false certainties, absolutes, all the trappings of fundamentalism, which is a way of thinking, not a religion. But ultimately, we have to let go. We have to surrender. And when surrendering, we find the good in life, the love, the beauty, and the mystery. The challenge of these times is to be here with it, to be here with it, and to make it your daily task and privilege to bring more love and beauty and mystery into the world. Another friend, I've been getting showered with amazing inputs lately. Another friend recently forwarded me an email. The message was, may you be a blessing. May you be a blessing. May you be a gift to other people. This notion of blessing is another concept that is especially potent this time of year. That we be blessed that we offer blessings, that we be a blessing. And I want to conclude with a couple of poems that I've been reading that have to do with this notion of blessing. One of them called A Blessing by James Wright. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day, alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more, They begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white. Her mane falls wild on her forehead, and the light breeze moves to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. That was A Blessing by James Wright. 
And I want to read you another poem by Jane Kenyon. It's called Happiness. And although she doesn't expressly use the word blessing, I'm quite confident that you will hear that in this poem. Happiness. There's just no accounting for happiness, or the way it turns up like a prodigal who comes back to the dust at your feet, having squandered a fortune far away. And how can you not forgive? You make a feast in honor of what was lost, and take from its place the finest garment, which you saved for an occasion you could not imagine. And you weep night and day to know that you were not abandoned, that happiness saved its most extreme form for you alone. No, happiness is the uncle you never knew about, who flies a single-engine plane onto the grassy landing strip, hitchhikes into town, and inquires at every door until he finds you asleep mid-afternoon, as you so often are, during the unmerciful hours of your despair. It comes to the monk in his cell. It comes to the woman sweeping the street with a birch broom, to the child whose mother has passed out from drink. It comes to the lover, to the dog chewing a sock, to the pusher, to the basket maker, and to the clerk stacking cans of carrots in the night. It even comes to the boulder, in the perpetual shade of pine barrens, to rain falling on an open sea, to the wine glass, weary of holding wine. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. And I hope you will share this program with others and spread the word about Myth in the Mojave. I'm extremely grateful to the members of the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp for their valuable financial support of this program. And if you're finding something of value here, please check out the details of the community on Bandcamp. You will play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life.